All right. If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. We come again to this passage. We're moving forward one verse. We're going to be focusing our attention on verse 10 for a week or few. And uh, if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, we'll begin reading again this morning at Hebrews 6, starting at verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love that you've shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us in this day grace. We pray for understanding. We pray for clarity. I pray, God, that as we think about the gospel this day, that we would think biblically. Lord, above all and through all and in all and around all, let the Bible be the guide of all that we do and all that we believe. Let our thinking be rooted and grounded in your word. Let your truth be what defines our understanding and not anything else. And God, I pray that that clarity would be imparted unto us, that that clarity would guide our conversation, that that clarity would provoke us and promote the gospel through all of our lives, that it would become a steadfast and sure hope, that we would rest without compromise and without fear on the trustworthiness of your promise to save us. God, over all that we do, let that assurance be our hope unto the end. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, and for his glory we pray. Amen. All right. So the writer of Hebrews makes an assertion that we must understand. We have to wrestle it out. And we must be at peace with it regardless of how we see the world if we're going to enjoy peace with God. This assertion is fundamental to the whole of the cosmos. It is whole and essential to the the entirety of all things. And everything falls apart if this assertion is not a true statement. What is the assertion? It is that God is not unjust. That God is not unrighteous. That God is the only standard of all things right and true and good. And that he alone is the arbiter of truth. And that he alone is worthy to be the judge of how we or anything has measured up to that truth. Thus, God alone will be the judge. And thus, we must have a definitive and comprehensive and acceptable answer to the question, Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? In other words, can we know that God is not unjust? That's the question that we're going to wrestle out today. So, I want to start with an assertion. And I want to start with the assertion of the writer of Hebrews, that God is not unrighteous, that God is not unjust. So, before we can go any further, we have to know what we're talking about. The word here is adikos. And in classic Greek, it means violator of law in the widest possible sense. It means somebody who violates rule and custom, 
somebody who is unjust in a general sense of what is acceptable. But more than this, it means somebody who is hostile to all and completely contrary to any rule of law. Sort of sounds like the United States in this day. Um, It flies in the face of all ethos. But in Scripture, it takes on a deeper and more significant meaning. It takes on the idea that somebody who is unrighteous is in violation of divine law. And it roots every idea of ethos in the comparison of the mind and will of God. Now, this is the truest sense of the word, since God alone is the standard of what is right and good. And it's at this, it's at the core of the idea that always God is true, and that God is always true to himself, and that this alone is what is best and right. And further, there is nobody who has the power to argue against what God has decreed. So before we can go any further in this conversation, we have to at least propose the idea, whether you're willing to swallow it all or not, we have to at least propose the idea that everything that God does is right. Now, but by everything, I mean everything. You pick whatever circumstance you want to look at, and you look at any evil or any atrocity or any wickedness or any action or anything whatsoever, and you're going to have to come to one of two conclusions. Either God, well, one of three conclusions. I'll give you three options. Either God has determined that this is what is to be and that it is good and right and proper, or God is impotent to change it, or God is wicked and unjust because he disagrees with you about what is right and what is proper. Okay? Those are really the only three options. You can parse them up however you want. You can refine them. You can try to make exceptions. You can come up with something else. That, that, but one of whatever answer you come up with, it's going to slot into one of those three options. Either God is right, or God is impotent, or God is unjust. Okay? So I want to think this through with you, and I want you to recognize this potential difficulty because there are many who would charge God with unrighteousness based upon some pretty fluid ideas. They'll charge God with unrighteousness because circumstances are not what they want. They'll charge God with unrighteousness because their lives are not what they want. They'll charge God with, right, with unrighteousness because they have difficulties that they will not or cannot overcome. They will charge God with unrighteousness because they do not see the promises of God as being fulfilled. They believe that they should be kept according to their own understanding instead of altering their understanding to match what God has said. And these are the head games we play with ourselves. And of course, there are those who will charge God with unrighteousness because they insist in some manner that they have the right and the might and the wisdom to stand in judgment over what God alone has done. I would reference you to God's response to Job in Job 38 when he said, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and he said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? There's a question for you. Who is this who darkens, who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then for the next three chapters, Job gets hammered. 
And several times in the conversation with God, Job says, I spoke without knowledge. Please forgive me. I'm a worm and not a man. I don't want to do this anymore. And God said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not done yet. Gird yourself like a man. I have some more questions for you. What's implied in that interaction? It is that Job's error was in believing that God could be judged by him in some manner that was adequate. Now look, we have to wrestle this out because all of us, to some degree or another, in one capacity or another, in one aspect or another, we put ourselves in the position of being judge over what God has done. We put ourselves in, being, in the position of being judge over God himself when we do that. And that is a dangerous ground to lay. That's a dangerous pattern to set for yourself. Because sooner or later, you might find yourself facing the whirlwind with the voice of God coming out of it. It's not inconceivable that God would deign to answer your questions. And I promise you, your very first response will be to clap your hand over your mouth and say, oh my goodness, I have spoken like a fool. So let's wrestle this out together before any of us encounter whirlwinds. And let's start off with an assumption. Let's start off with a biblical assumption. We affirm it every week. God is good. Amen? We, we affirm that. We say this. We testify this together collectively. We testify of this in our actions. We testify of this in our word. We testify of this in the idea that we say God is good. And in that goodness is the corollary that he is wondrous. That everything he is is exactly beautiful and that he is perfect in everything that he does. In his entire nature, God is beautiful and right and wondrous. And he is absolutely right. Okay? And he is absolutely glorious. And he is absolutely beautiful. And he is absolutely true. And he is absolutely always profoundly the core of everything that we should look at and say, this is right or this is not. God becomes the standard of our judgment for all that we do. He is kind. He is generous. He does all things well. And he does all things in a manner that is completely consistent with his own nature and character. There is nothing in this life which excludes itself from that statement. And by nothing, I mean nothing. There is no circumstance which excludes itself from the statement that God has done all things well, and that he is absolutely righteous in all his ways. Now, I will freely admit that some things are a little bit hard for us to see that truth in. So there are times and there are circumstances and there are events in the world whereby we are forced by who God is to step over the things that we can comprehend and stand firmly in the land of, I believe this is true because God is God. And I believe Him and I trust Him and I take Him at His word. And that is an acceptable response. And more than that, that is a necessary response. Because to do anything else is to argue back against God and presume to judge Him. If we're not willing to take that step and say, Lord, I don't get this. 
I don't understand. I can't put these things together. I can't make these things lie comfortably in the same room, let alone in the same bed. So help me, but until you do, I'm just going to believe that these things are true, that you are right, and that this circumstance is according to your will, though I can't understand how. There are a few that I look at in the world around right now, and I come to that place. If God is sovereign, and babies are still being murdered at an appalling rate by their mothers, I don't understand. But I do know that God is good, and I do know that God has done all things well, and that this moment is exactly the way he intends it to be. I know that. And I don't know that because logically I can see the end, I know that because I trust my God. I know that because everything that I just said is 100% rooted in Scripture. I know that because God tells me that's true. And since I know God, and since I trust God, I have to believe that that's true. So, taking all of that And looking at our position in this world and our position in this fallen world, I want to stretch it just a little bit more for you. Does God owe you anything? Anything at all? Does God owe you mercy? Does God owe you kindness? Does God owe you grace? Does God owe you forgiveness? No. I could go on and on and on. According to Scripture, God is the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, all things belong to Him. If all things belong to Him, then He is free to do with His own as He sees fit. Amen? With me so far? You're fine with that as long as I'm talking about things or somebody else. It gets a little more complicated when we're talking about us. <laughs> I'll acknowledge that. It gets a little more complicated when the, when the thing that I'm asserting God is free to do with as he wills is my life. But it's only complicated in my head. The truth itself is very plain. I am his creation. More than that, I am his purchased possession I'm doubly his, to do with as he wills. God can do anything with my life that he pleases. And I owe it to him and to myself to remember that. I owe it to him and to the church to remember that. Because the minute that I begin to think God doesn't have the right to do with me as he pleases, I become a danger to you. I become somebody whom God will have to correct And that will impact you as the body of Christ. It's important for us to understand the practical implications of these things. He has given us his law by which we might please him. And he has given us his spirit and a clear path of obedience through which we could know his blessing. We have willfully and intentionally rebelled against his law over and over and over and over and over again. We continue to rebel against his law because in our human basic fleshly natures, we are rebels against him. 
He has absolute sovereignty over all of his creation, and that is still no excuse for our sin. It is no excuse for our sin for a lot of reasons, but let's just settle for one. It never enters our thinking. It is never our intention to honor God and submit to his sovereignty by our sin. Does that make sense? Nobody has ever said, God is sovereign and I want to do this thing. And therefore, since God has given me this desire to do this thing and I want to yield to his sovereignty, then I'm going to do this thing that he tells me plainly in his word that I ought not to do. Nobody would ever say that with any earnestness. We do the things that we want to do because we want to do them. And frankly, the fact that God doesn't want us to do them and tells us plainly not to do them is part of what makes them so enticing. That's the nature of rebellion. How many children have you ever seen step up to the edge of what they know they're not supposed to do and see how close they can come to it? That's human nature in its rawest form. Joyce put up the fall decorations this week, and in those decorations there are a couple of duck decoys. They're pretty indestructible. They're they're real decoys. I'm not worried that Ivan's going to break them, but we've told him, no, you may not touch them. And there have been lots of times we've watched him come up to them and stand, just his finger right there. So close, so he's not quite touching them, and he's looking at us like, do you see me? Can I get away with this? And I'm constantly reminded when I see children interact with their parents how profoundly broken human nature is in its basic form. Anybody who talks about the innocence of children never had any. (laughs) Never spent any time around them. Never had anything to do with children in any capacity. They must have just read a book somewhere. Because anybody who's ever been around children understands that they are broken fundamentally just like their parents. That's our nature. Because we have been rebels from our birth. We have been rebels since God allowed Adam to fall. There is not an argument against God's sovereignty which he is not impervious to. There is not an argument against his truth which he is not impervious to. But that doesn't stop us from raising the arguments, does it? Let's look at an example from Scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And I want you to see how Paul sort of turns the arguments on its ear. Let me give you some context as I start this out, because Paul has written this letter to the church in Rome, and he's writing it in the presence of the Jewish people in Rome who are arguing against the gospel. Paul has not been to Rome yet. He will go to Rome in chains, which was not his intention, but it was God's intention. But he is laying out this, the entire book of Romans is is kind of Paul's theological treatise. This is Paul explaining the theology of who we are, how we're broken, how God saved us, why God saved us, what God's about, and what God is doing. And and Paul has written for us in the book of Romans the most comprehensive, clearly defined theological exposition of salvation that you're going to find anywhere. So in Romans chapter 3, Paul is beginning to deal with the argument that the Jews have raised that salvation by faith is not required because they have the law and they have the promises of God. And if God doesn't save all of Israel because they are Jews, then God is unjust. And that's where we're going to pick this up. So Romans chapter 3, 
Paul asks the question, he says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed to the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So I want to stop right there and I want to think with you for just a moment about what Paul has just said. There are those who are going to assert that because some Jews don't believe that if what Paul is teaching in the gospel is correct, then God is unjust, that God is unfaithful, and that God's promises have now been broken. And Paul, responding to this, simply quotes Scripture back to them and says, no, everything happens so that God may be proven true when he speaks and that man may be proven to be false. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written in the Scripture. And so what Paul says here is, look, you cannot trust human wisdom and human logic. You have to look deeper, and you have to take God at his word and believe that what he says is true. This is required for us to proceed any further. And then he goes on. But if our righteousness denies the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. So again, he's talking about, this is the human argument, If God is really sovereign and God is really doing what's right, then my unrighteousness makes him unrighteous. And he says, that's that's the man's argument. And he says, no, that's not true. I speak as a man. Certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? So what's his reply? His reply is, God by definition is worthy of judging the world because God by definition is the sole arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. So where there's a conflict with us in our understanding between right and wrong, good and bad, what God did, what God didn't do, what God allows, what God doesn't allow, where there's a conflict in any of those things, the problem is with us and not with God. We are our own worst enemy. And our heads need to get around this fact that we have to position ourselves to say whatever God says in his word is the truth. Regardless of how I think, regardless of how I feel about it, regardless of how much of it makes sense to me in this moment or not, God has said it, therefore it must be accepted as truth, period, end of discussion. So let's read on. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported And as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So, the the culmination of this argument against this is, therefore, God has ordained this wickedness, and therefore, how dare God judge me for doing what he ordained me to do? And Paul says, you know, the idea that we can act in unrighteousness and that God is somehow exalted by our sin is a wicked argument. And he again asserts that God has said he is good and does all things well, and we must trust that and let us not be victim to this bad idea. First of all, God is always right. His word is always proven right. And God will keep every promise he ever made to the nation of Israel, even if some individuals are not included. Now, our rebellion is never 
acted out in any mind towards God's righteousness. It is always about us and what we want. And then lastly, our unrighteousness only confirms that God is righteousness because the blackness of our sin and rebellion, far from impugning his goodness, only shows them more clearly because against the backdrop of our sin, his glory shines more brightly. This is really what Paul is driving at here. And he goes on, verse 9 through 18, and he lays out the basic vileness of human nature. And we've read that passage and read that passage and read that passage, and I'm going to just skip over it for this morning just for the sake of time. We'll come back to it here a little bit later. But I do have to acknowledge that there is one difficulty that we as the people of God have to at least think through. So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. I'm going to read that one more time. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, why is this a problem? Well, because we have to recognize that God has seemingly done this very thing. And we must understand that his actions are not contrary to his nature, nor are they contrary to his justice, nor are they contrary to the established order of all creation. So if, if Scripture affirms that somebody who justifies the wicked and somebody who condemns the innocent is an abomination in the sight of God, and we consider Christ, if we don't fully unpack what Christ has done, we find ourselves at a place where we're not really sure what to believe any longer. Because God in Christ has seemingly done this very thing, which he says is an abomination to him. The difficulty plainly stated is that God has not punished us, the guilty ones, and that he has punished the innocent Christ. So we have to ask, how then has this not made God unjust? How is God still righteous? Further, his own pattern of action against rebellion, in other words, the heavenly rebellion, would argue that mankind should have been eternally cast away from his presence for that sin in the garden. When the angels rebelled, what happened? God cast them out. He didn't forgive them. He didn't look over it. He didn't do anything else. And this is the one true difficulty that we must resolve if we're able to retain the justice of God as the foundation of all of our good. This question, Paul Washer states that Proverbs 17.15 is the problem of Scripture. And he's not wrong. That, that this is the question that we have to get our heads around, and this is the question that we have to resolve according to Scripture. So let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. With that question firmly in our minds, I want to examine with you Romans chapter 3 as we think about whether or not God is unrighteous. And we're going to skip over the part where it talks about everybody sinning and all of the sin that's in them. And we're going to begin reading at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, 
By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul, firmly understanding the problem that Proverbs 17.15 has given us, gives us his answer. And he unpacks for us that God also understood the problem and gives us his answer. And I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that Paul says here as we start to dive in a little bit deeper. And it tells us that God, through the cross, is actually vindicating his righteousness, that he is defending his righteousness, that he is showing forth the truth of his righteousness in light of the fact that he passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so when you talk about previously committed in, in relationship to the cross of Christ, that was everything from Jesus back to Adam. In other words, God did not bring the hammer down on mankind and extinguish us as he was obligated to do. Okay, in a, strict, in a strict world of law and justice, when Adam and Eve sinned, God's obligation was to destroy them. But because God is God, and because God had a plan which looked past that, because God had a plan which not only looked past that, but included that, so that we would understand His grace and His mercy, because of that, God in His forbearance put all of that sin together in a pocket and said, okay, we're going to create a way by which man's sin can be stepped over until the appointed hour. And that manner of stepping over sin was the institution of the sacrificial system by which the sin of the guilty was imputed to the innocent animal and the animal was slain in their stead and their sins were put on abeyance until the time of Christ. This was the system that was put in place. The law condemns us. Period. We have no answer to the law. We have no way of saying, God, I didn't know. God, I didn't understand. God, I didn't mean to. All of those are merely excuses. We know our consciences are within us. They tell us what's going on. We know the law has been written in our hearts. We know that God himself will often rise up and say, don't you dare do that thing. And still we do it. We know this. We have no excuse. We have no defense. And all of our efforts to try and make ourselves not guilty only affirm our guilt. Because an innocent man doesn't need to protest his innocence. Shakespeare got it right. Methinks thou dost protest too much. Amen? If we're innocent, it's evident that we're innocent. If we're innocent, it's evident that we are not guilty. Those things are axiomatic. 
We understand this. And we must understand that when we were found guilty by the law of God, it was because we ourselves violated it. And the law, rather than making a way for us to be acceptable in the sight of God, merely shows us how guilty we are. Paul said, by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. The law brings to us the knowledge of our guilt. It brings to us the knowledge of our sin. That is all it ever did. Look again. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So right away, anybody who tells you that the way to get to heaven is to do what the Bible says and obey the law doesn't understand the reality of life. You cannot earn your salvation by anything that you do. You cannot earn your salvation by any action of your life, by any intention of your heart, by any decision of your mind, by any action of your will or anything else, because the law of God has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to show you your guilt and to be a tutor to drive you to the cross of Christ. That's all it does. That's all it was ever intended to do. So when the Jews hung their hopes on their partial obedience to the law of God, They were hanging their hopes on the wrong thing. And this is the message of the gospel. The law was pointing to something. Now part of the difficulty that the Jews of Paul's day faced was that they had spent more time in the first century examining the rabbinical writings than they had in examining the scripture. They had moved away from an obedience under the scripture and an obedience under the law of God, and they had moved into this extravagant extrapolation of the law by which the Sabbath law, for instance, had had 700 plus additions to it by which a man was determined exactly how much weight he could carry for how many steps and how many spices he could add to his dinner lest it become work. Okay? All of this is an attempt of man to somehow make the law of God both less than it is and more than it is. Because the law of God is, first of all, supremely holy. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he took the entirety of the law of God, the whole exposition of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the entirety of it, and he reduced it into two very simple ideas. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is the law of God? What is the greatest commandment? What is it that God requires us to do? (laughs) Only everything that you can't. Only to love God with your whole being, everything that you are, all the days of your life, accepting no moment and accepting no compromise. Oh, and by the way, just in case you missed it, to love your neighbor more than you love yourself, which removes from us the right to somehow put ourselves above the people in our lives. It it is so compellingly disastrous to our human ability to do anything. And we have to recognize the fact that the law does not promise us any deliverance. At the same time, the law is witness to the overarching and undergirding righteousness of God, so much so that it stands as righteous even apart from the ability of anyone to keep it. So, let's think this through. 
If you look at the laws of the world and every civilization ever known, they have some measure of at least the second table of the law of God, beginning with honoring your parents and ending with not coveting, and usually there are some that are left out. But you can look at the ones that are very evident and you can say that every culture has recognized that thievery is wrong. Every culture has recognized that murder is wrong. Every culture has recognized that you need to be faithful to your marriage vows. Every culture has recognized that that you have to be honest in your dealings with other people. And every culture has recognized that if you're acting in ways that are wrong towards your parents who are the authority in your life, then you have a problem which is going to translate into everybody else's life as well. Therefore, we should deal with this. The basics of the second table of the law have been ubiquitous across mankind's experience. Why is this? It is because God has written it on our hearts. And whether we want to acknowledge Him as the source of it or not, the Scripture affirms that He is. And the Scripture affirms that not only is He the source of it, but we are all accountable unto it. And God's righteousness is displayed in his creation completely. And God has provided a means by which we might obtain the righteousness which is required by the law. But it does not expect us nor require us to fulfill the law in order to keep it. And therein is the horns of the dilemma. God has provided this way which goes... I don't want to say outside the law or around the law, but it kind of does. It fulfills the law but not within the confines of the law for us. It fulfills the law by somebody else doing what we did, doing what we couldn't do, excuse me. God does not accept our best efforts. Let's just say that. Is is 99.9% enough? No, it's not. The law requires 100% obedience over the 100% of your life without any exception whatsoever. 99.9, however many .9s you want to add at there, if it's less than 100%, it's not enough. So therein is a difficulty for us. God does not accept our best efforts. And God does not look forward in time and see that we might somehow have had some small acceptable righteousness. Again, that would be our almost best efforts. That would be our partial obedience. That would be this one tiny little thing that we have to get right. God does not accept our best efforts. He does not accept our future efforts. And he does not accept our partial righteousness. God's standard for us is 100% accurately obedient to Scripture or guilty. That's all you have. Those are your only two options. You are either innocent by perfect obedience or you are guilty. And if we leave it up to the law, then all men are condemned by the law. Amen? If we leave it up to the law of God, then everyone is guilty. But God does not leave it up to the law to fulfill our righteousness. God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. And he gives us the righteousness of Jesus 100% to everyone who believes in Jesus and trusts him to be their substitute, to be their representative, to be their hope. This is what Paul lays out for us in Romans 3. Again, look with me at verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So, what Paul says is there is no distinction between the Jews who have had the law and the Gentiles who have not had the law. And God deals with all of us on a very even playing field because of that. He deals with all of mankind with true equity. And this equity presupposes universal guilt and presents a universally applicable solution to that problem. By this method, the justice of God is clearly displayed. By the method of the death of Jesus in our place, God's justice is is manifestly displayed to us. So, I want to think through how this displays God's justice. First of all, God the Father agreed to accept the substitution of Jesus Christ in our place. This means as if we had died as payment for our sin. God counts the death of Jesus as if it were our death because we were guilty for our sin. It is as if we had obeyed the law fully, even as Jesus did. So God counts the life of Jesus as if it were our life, and God counts the death of Jesus as if it were our death, and God rewards the faithfulness of Jesus as if we had been as faithful as He was. This is God's part in the covenant of grace that saves us. He agrees to count in our place all that Jesus did. God the Son agreed to stand in our place in every way. So he came to earth, put on humanity, not as a momentary coat, but as an eternal transformation of his eternal nature. Jesus is eternally God. He is also eternally God the Son. He is eternally 100% God and eternally 100% man. He lived a life of perfect obedience as a man. And he died the death that we deserved as if he had been guilty of all of our sin. So just put that in the mill and let it grind for a little while. Think about your sin. Just you. Your rebellion. Your active disobedience against God. The things that you did knowing that God didn't want you to do them. Jesus, hanging on the cross, took those things and said, Father, I did this. Jesus, the undefiled, bore your guilt and bore your sin and bore the stain of your hatred for his Father. And he took that, and in taking that, he then died the death that that sin deserved. And he was doing this for the actual particular sin of every single person that God gave him to redeem. Now, it's important for us to understand this. Jesus did not die universally for all sin everywhere of all people. If he had done so, then all people everywhere would be saved. Okay? Jesus died for the particular sin of the particular people that God had given him to redeem. Period. 
This means that his death is efficacious for our salvation. It is not merely potential. It actually secures our salvation. Any other solution means there are people in hell for whom Christ died, which makes his death impotent. Okay? You with me? You don't have to agree at this point, but I need you to at least be tracking with the argument. What we have to understand is that what Jesus did on the cross was very intentionally, very purposefully, very pointedly aimed at the forgiveness of our sin. Those who place their trust in Christ, those whom God had given to him to redeem, because it is the actual specific punishment for every sin which is thus imputed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 If we had more time, we'd unpack all of chapter 5, but we don't have time for that. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. So who's that man? That'd be Adam. By Adam's sin, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, that's an important phrase, even so. It means in the same manner, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So what did Paul just do? What Paul just did was gave to us the foundation for imputation. And interestingly, he put the foundation for imputation all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He said, God imputed unrighteousness to us by the action of our father Adam and what Adam did in the Garden. And since God imputed unrighteousness to us, he thereby opened the door and established the precedent by which he could also impute righteousness to us. It is done in the same fashion. It is done in the same manner. It is the fact that you were not guilty of eating the fruit on the tree, but you bear the guilt of it. Make sense? And since that is the thing that defiled your nature and out of that root came all of your individual particular sin, it is an open doorway for God to impute to you the righteousness of Christ which is freely applied to your account. God looks at the death of Jesus in the same way that he looks at the sin of Adam. You are counted as being in Christ when Christ was obedient. His death is for your specific sin and every sin that is imputed unto him. He endured the wrath of God, he consumed our portion of hell, and he fully expiated the guilt and condemnation that our sin so richly deserved. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He bore your punishment. He died in your place for your sin. And more than that, he agreed to share his own inheritance with us so that as equal partakers of the reward. In other words, God said, Jesus, you're going to go and die in their place so that I do not have to kill them. And you're also going to live in their place so that I can count your righteousness as theirs, but that's not quite enough because I want to make them heirs as well. I want to make them my children. So you're going to share your inheritance of righteousness with them. And say, that is a huge order. Well, look with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 15. Paul writes this. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So God has ordained all of this. Christ has performed all of this. But God the Spirit has his part as well. And he agrees to secure all those that the Father chose to save. He does this, first of all, by effectually calling us to life. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll just read the first few verses of this. But Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1, it says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit whom now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, prior to our... Conversion, we were by nature children of wrath. Paul in Romans chapter 3 tells us that nobody seeks after God, nobody does what is right, nobody does what is good, nobody chooses God, nobody desires God. In Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us that we are by nature children of wrath, but he made us alive. And when he makes us alive, a new nature is imparted unto us, whereby we see our sin in the same way that God sees it. We see it as worthy of hatred. We see it as worthy of cessation. We should not sin anymore. God gives us new hearts that love Him and that hate sin. And He gives us new eyes that see our sin in the same way so that we repent of our sin and cry for mercy. This is the experiential side of your salvation. You repent in response to God regenerating your soul. God gives you a new heart. And the first words of a new living heart are, God, please have mercy. Forgive me. So the Spirit does that. The Spirit then comes to dwell within us. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 6, it tells us this. Because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is the Spirit dwelling within us. And He grants us His own communion with God so that we might have fellowship with Him. So when the Spirit comes to dwell inside of us, He alters our relationship with God so that we know we are sons. This is why our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. We know that we belong to Him. We know that the relationship has dynamically changed. No longer is God far off, but now God is near unto us. And He begins to teach us God's ways. John 14, 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He helps us to pray. Romans eight twenty six says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And He seals us and keeps us for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So all of this taken together, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit, gives to us the righteousness, the alien righteousness of Christ, which means that God can be both just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because the punishment for our sin has been satisfied. Your sin, your actual acts of rebellion against a sovereign God, have been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. This is God's working. This is God's power to save a people. And this is why we can assert with the scripture and come back to the writer of Hebrews and say, we know that God is not unjust. Now I understand that what the writer of Hebrews is saying in the broader context is that God is not unjust to forget. And we'll get on to that next week. But it's important that we register this because the whole rest of our confidence and our trust in everything that God has done is anchored in this idea. And beloved, hear me. Hear me carefully. If you have even the slightest shred of doubt that God is just, that God is righteous in everything that he does, then at the very least, your peace and your comfort with him will be greatly damaged. You will not be stable in your love for God. You will not be stable in your obedience unto Him. You will not be stable in your relationship with Him because you're always on the edge about whether or not God likes you or doesn't like you, whether or not God wants to be with you or doesn't want to be with you, whether or not God is going to accept you when you come to Him to ask for repentance. And this foundation is the very thing that all of us need more than anything else because here's what you need to know. There are things in your life that the devil is going to bring up to your mind. Things that you have done. Things that you didn't do, but you really wanted to. Things that you've struggled with. Things that you may still struggle with. And all of these things are designed to do one thing and one thing only. They are designed to drive a wedge between you and your father. And if you doubt God's justice, if you doubt his righteousness, if you doubt the ability of God to forgive you despite what you've done, then when that happens, your immediate response is going to be to pull back away from God and say, no, 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 I'm not so sure. And I don't, I don't know how you're going to deal with me. And so your whole life is going to be this back and forth, wishy-washy, uncomfortable sort of truce, but never really confident in who you are in Christ and who God has called you to be. Beloved, you have to rest in the promise of God that He is just in satisfying His righteousness on your behalf. He didn't violate the rules. And we hear it expressed in all kinds of crazy ways. You'll hear people say things like this. you hear them say, God's mercy triumphed over His justice on Calvary. Blasphemy. God's mercy didn't triumph over His justice. He's not at war with Himself. God satisfied his own justice by his own act of love on our behalf. He is both just and the justifier. There's no quandary in him. There's no dilemma. There's no argument within the parts of God about what it means to be his child. He knows who he chose. He knows whom he saved. He knows whom heart he has written his name upon. This is his working. And it gives you bedrock on which to stand when nothing else seems to make sense. It gives you confidence to stand boldly before the throne of grace and say, God, please allow me to come into your presence though I am guilty of this new sin that I knew I shouldn't have done, but please, God, forgive me. And know that he's not going to bar the door against you. And know that he's not going to hold you off. And know that in the end, even that act of rebellion can somehow be served according to his purpose. 
Because what the scripture tells us is that in everything that God has done, he is actively displaying his righteousness. He's actively displaying and vindicating his truth. And he's displaying his justice as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So if Christ was just and died for the unjust, and yet God did this, is God's justice being vindicated? Absolutely it is. Absolutely what Christ has done offers forward the truth that God is everything he says he is. And he's not just showing that to us. Ephesians 3, we read it all the time, tells us that God is displaying his wisdom to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. That God is showing forth his truth and that his justice, though it has been impugned by his adversaries, is absolutely unscathed. It is unblemished. It is untarnished. His justice is absolutely right. And at the same time, his people are justified. And he teaches that not only to us, but he teaches that to a watching world. So track with me here. The enemy brings up something to your mind from your past that you wish you hadn't done, and he threatens to expose it to all the world. So what if he does? Have you been forgiven? Is God glorified through that? Yes, he is. Because in that forgiveness, there is the promise of forgiveness to others who need to know that nothing they have done is so great that God cannot reach it. Through that testimony, even of your failings, God is honored. Because his justice has been satisfied. God didn't cut any corners and he didn't dodge around his truth. He didn't change the rules. He established the rules. And he is the absolute guarantor that the rules will always be observed. And always can he be trusted. You see, in the end, if we're solid in this, then we become a testimony to the watching world. We become what God says we are. We become the evidence of his truth that he himself is proclaiming in the heavenly places. As you stand or as you fall, God explains to the watching cosmos, look at my child. See the forgiveness of Christ that has been lavished on them. See the love that I have for them. And see the truth of their salvation as they rise even from this. But do you understand that even when you fall down, you are giving testimony to the greatness of your God? You should. You should recognize that even in your failures, God is glorified. Because in your failures, you become more dependent upon His grace. You become more dependent upon his mercy. You become more attuned to the fact that without him you have nothing and without him you are nothing. And the fact that God is just is the foundation for all of this. He is displaying his glory and he is displaying the perfection of his will. And ultimately, let me ask you this question. What is the will of God for your life? What? To glorify him. And what is the path for that will to be accomplished? To conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What is God's intention by saving you? It is to change you into the perfect representation of His Son, Jesus. It is to change you. He, he, he knew you before the world began. Ephesians 1 tells us that you were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. He knew you. He knew everything about you. He knew all of your failings. He knew all of the things that you would say are strengths, which are really not. (laughs) But he knew everything there was to know about you, and he chose you, and he chose everything there is to be you. And in doing that, he has established a path whereby you will be conformed to the image of his Son. You say, well, what is that path? Well, that path is everything that happens in your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. Every single thing that happens, happens because it bears some manner on shaping you into the image of Christ. And beloved, we have to recognize this truth. We have to believe this with all that we are and all that we have. We have to hang our whole lives on this truth. Or when the enemy comes against us with waves of doubt and assailing us with our own past and our own failures, we will be unhinged. We will be cast aside, at least from usefulness for a season. And I do not desire that for any of you. I long for the body of Christ to fulfill its calling, to be the testimony of Jesus in the place where he plants us. And for us to do this requires us to rest in the fact that God is absolutely just, absolutely trustworthy, that our justification is not a, it's not a game, and it's not a, a shuffle, it's not a magician's card trick. It's not a hoax. You have been atoned for in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that was the purpose, and you have been atoned for. It doesn't matter for you to do anything to add anything to it. You can't. It's His work. And therefore, it's His glory. And part of the glory that's being displayed in Him fulfilling this is the glory of you being conformed to the image of Christ. All of this rests in Him. And all of this relies upon the Christ to be exactly who He said He was. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and help us understand just how magnificent is your salvation. Father, teach us to rest in Christ. Teach us to trust you regardless of what happens. Help us, Father, to face the onslaught of the enemy and the exposure of all things with equanimity and with grace and with patience, knowing that in you we are forgiven and made whole. God, I pray that you would plant this truth deep, deep, deep in our hearts and let Christ be honored by it. We ask it in the name of Jesus.
Amen.